Well, this morning we finish our series in the book of Proverbs that we began at the beginning of the summer. And as we look towards the fall, as we look towards what, what's next, as we make our plans, it's fitting because this morning is all about our plans and God's providence. You see, this theme of plans and providence runs throughout the book of Proverbs, and specifically in chapter 16, many of the excerpts of which are printed in your bulletin this morning. Now, young worshipers that are with us this morning, this passage says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but it leads somewhere unexpected. So my question for you this morning is, where does the way that seems right to a man actually lead? Hear now the word of the Lord from Proverbs 16, verses 1 through 9 and 25 through 33. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. A worker's appetite works for him. His mouth urges him on. A worthless man plots evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisper separates close friends. A man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. Whoever winks his eyes plans dishonest things. He who who purses his lips brings evil to pass. Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. The lot is cast into the lap, But it's every decision is from the Lord. This is God's living and active word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, would you give us eyes to see what it says, ears to hear your truth. And Lord, would you work in our hearts by your spirit for your glory and for our good. Would you help us to see the great providence of you throughout the throughout the whole spread of your creation, from the beginning to the end, and most especially in Christ our Savior. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing in your sight. In the name of Christ, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. There's a quote that's often attributed to Mark Twain, although nobody knows if he actually said it or not. That's how those things tend to go. But it goes something like this. Some people are troubled by the things in the Bible they can't understand. The things that trouble me are the things I can understand. We see, when we come to the Bible's teaching on our plans and God's providence, divine sovereignty and human responsibility, we're troubled. And we're not troubled because this teaching isn't clear. It's not because we can't understand what the Bible says. Listen to just these two verses from our passage. Verse 4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Verse 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. It's not that we can't understand what the Bible is saying. The trouble is that we can, and so we're left with questions, whether we're Christians or non-Christians here this morning. How can God be sovereign and we be responsible for our actions? 
How can God be just in letting evil things happen? Why would God do things this way? It doesn't make any sense to me. Or, what is God really doing right now in my life? And on and on our questions go. Now let me be clear, I don't, be, I don't claim to be able to answer all of these questions, much less in a 30-minute sermon, 25 since we had baptism and communion this morning. But I'm not God, far from it. But my aim is to show us what God's Word actually teaches. And far from a contradiction, far from being mutually exclusive, divine sovereignty and human responsibility, our planning and God's providence go hand in hand. In fact, we plan because of God's providence. We plan because of God's providence. We plan not in spite of or at war against or without, but actually because of God's providence. So this morning we'll start with God's providence. And to begin, let me stop and give you a definition for that word because I've been using the word providence a lot this morning. This definition comes from 17th century man Francis Turretin. He says God's providence over creation means three things. One, his foreknowledge, knowing what's going to happen. Two, his foreordination, making so that it would happen. And three, his effective administration, making sure everything happens along the way. That's what what I mean when I say providence. And Proverbs, particularly Proverbs 16, reflects this idea. Look at verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. This, this word for answer here means a response or purpose. What actions actually come to pass? There's an interesting wordplay that we can't see here. You see, plans in the Hebrew is ma'arke, and answer is ma'ane. There's this parallel between what people are doing and ultimately what God is doing. Verse 3, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. So the Lord has the power to establish plans or not. Verse 9 is the same idea. The heart of man plans his way but the Lord establishes his steps. And then all the way down, it concludes, verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Even a seemingly random event to us, like the casting of a lot, the ultimate decision is from the Lord. But what about human actions? I understand something random, like a a lot being cast, but what about human actions, good and evil deeds? Well, look at verse 2. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. The Lord weighs the spirit. He knows truly what is good. Around the time the Proverbs was written, there was this myth in Egypt that when you died, your soul was weighed against a feather, and you wanted it to be lighter than the feather. And the idea here that they're taking is actually, it's not not a feather that we're weighed against, but it's God that's weighing our spirit. And God is just, so evil is not going to go unpunished. Look at verse 4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. The passage continues, verse 5, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. And I know that makes us uncomfortable. But it's a good thing that those who do evil will go unpunished. We all can say there is evil in the world. We see it, we feel it, we know it. And there must be justice out there somewhere. So a good God must punish that which is evil. But what about the righteous? Well, look at verses 6 and 7. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. The righteous, those with steadfast love and faithfulness, actually have their iniquities atoned for, paid for, because of that. And those who make their way to please the Lord, God can even reconcile their enemies to them. So there is a reward for doing good. 
And Proverbs says elsewhere, it's the Lord's purposes that will stand. The book of Romans says simply, for from him and through him and to him are all things. So the least roll of the dice, all the way to the fate of nations, God is in control. And when I'm speaking about the fate of nations, I'm actually reminded of God's word, the providence that we see in Daniel, the book of Daniel, specifically Daniel 5. You see, at this point, Daniel is in exile from Jerusalem, taken into Babylonian captivity. And it was under King Nebuchadnezzar, and King Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, is now king. And Belshazzar decides to take all of the beautiful vessels of gold from the temple they they ransacked in Jerusalem and have a feast. And at this feast, he begins to praise the gods of gold and wood and stone. And then all of a sudden, a hand appears and writes words on a wall. And he's terrified. He doesn't know what to do. And he's looking for somebody who can interpret because he doesn't know what it says. And finally, somebody finds Daniel. And hear what Daniel says. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. This reflects the very thing that Proverbs is telling us. God knows the number of our days. He weighs our spirit. He measures out what is just. And he brings his judgment to pass here through the Medes and the Persians, which that very night come and conquer Babylon. Or think of the New Testament. In Romans 9, as we heard in our New Testament reading, it gives the image of God as the master craftsman, the potter, who has total and complete control over his creation. But it's still so difficult to understand. What does God do with evil? How could he possibly have a use for it? What does it look like? And I think one of the most beautiful examples I know of this comes from J.R.R. Tolkien's The Silmarillion. And if you know The Silmarillion, it's basically the origin story of Middle Earth, setting the groundwork for The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. And at the beginning of this grand story, the, the supreme being begins to sing creation into existence, sings this beautiful song. And one of his his lesser helpers begins to turn the song toward his own ends. His name's Melkor. He begins to twist the song in a way that it wasn't meant to be, and things are no longer beautiful. They're terrible. But the the supreme being comes to him, and he says this, and I think it's beautiful, I think it's brilliant. He says, And thou, Melkor, shalt see that no theme may be played that hath not its uttermost source in me, nor can any alter the music in my despite. For he that attempted this shall prove but mine instrument in the devising of things more wonderful, which he himself hath not imagined. You see, the supreme being comes and says, you have twisted this for your own ends, but I will make something yet more beautiful out of it in a way that you couldn't possibly imagine. And we have to believe the same thing when it comes to God's providence, that he is working all things out, even in a way that we might not be able to possibly imagine. God is sovereign over all things. His providence extends over all time and space. So what do we do in in, in light of that, in response to that? Well, Proverbs 16, indeed, the whole Bible tells us that we plan. This is our second point this morning, our plans. Look back at many of these same verses. Verse 1, the plans of the heart belong to man. We have a responsibility for our plans, and God made it that way. Verse 3, commit your work to the Lord. We have a responsibility to plan, and in our planning, commit our work to God underneath his providence. This is echoed again in verse 9, the heart of man plans his way. And this passage, I believe, invites us to ask, what are our plans actually like? Again, verse 2, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. 
Are our plans only pure in our own eyes or in God's? Verse 5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. We should ask, do we plan arrogantly from our hearts? Or rather, do we plan, as verses 6 and 7 tell us, in fear of the Lord, by steadfast love and faithfulness? Do we make our ways to please the Lord? As verse 7 says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And then verse 8, better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. As we plan, do we seek out righteousness or wealth? Would we be okay with a little with righteousness versus great revenues with injustice? Verse 25 is very clear. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Left to ourselves, what seems the right thing to do leads us to death. Young worshipers, this is not only true for you, this is true for us, this is true for me. Left to ourselves, our ways actually lead to death. See, we're swayed by our appetites, as verse 26 says. A worker's appetite works for him. His mouth urges him on. And then verses 27 through 30 gives us example after example of what wicked plans look like. Verse 27, someone plots evil and plans evil, and his speech is a scalding fire. Verse 28, someone is dishonest, planning and spreading lies and separating friends. Verse 29, someone plans and executes violence. Verse 30, somebody plans dishonest things and brings evil to pass. And then we have this contrast in verses 31 through 32, because then we have the good. Verse 31, gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. The righteous are crowned in glory with their great hair, believe it or not. Verse 32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Better than might or taking a city, rather, is being slow to anger and controlling our spirit, ruling our spirit, as it says. And so we're left to ask the question, are we more like those planning in verses 27 through 30 or verses 31 through 32? What is more true of us? Proverbs says elsewhere, he who plans peace will have joy. Proverbs 31, it's the righteous woman who's able to laugh at the time to come. Back to that illustration of Daniel, God actually uses the planning of the Medes and Persians to accomplish his own ends. He uses them to come in and render judgment on Belshazzar and the Babylonians. But not just that, it's actually through that very act that the exiles will be returned to Jerusalem. For Cyrus comes to power after Darius, and then he releases the people of Jerusalem to go back and rebuild. God is working out his own ends in everything, even through the planning of people. Or think of Esther in the Old Testament during the exile, who shrewdly, wisely, and boldly planned and then went at great risk of her life in front of the king and was able to save her entire nation. God used her plans as a part of his providence for salvation. Or in the New Testament, we talked about verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. In Acts chapter 1, many of you might know, uh, they're, they're one disciple short, and so they cast a lot to determine the last one. But what's interesting is there's a lot of casting in the, of lots in the Old Testament and into the New Testament in Acts 1, but we never see it again afterwards. Why is that? There's so many decisions they have to make later in the book of Acts and in the early church. Why don't we see them casting lots? Well, if the lot is cast in Acts 1, God's Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2. 
And then God's people know that actually he has given us the ability to work out his purposes with the gifts he's given us by the Spirit. So they no longer have to cast lots, but they plan and they act on his behalf. All the decisions they make in their many journeys are things that they they plan, but they ultimately leave the providence up to God. But it's still so difficult to think about how we fit these two things together, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. The great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, was once preaching on John 6.37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. It seems like on the one hand it's saying the Father is is giving the Son a people to come, and yet those people are coming. And so somebody asked him, how do you reconcile these two things? You know what his answer was? He said, I never reconcile friends. I never reconcile friends. Many of us might know the Heidelberg Catechism, question one, but I want to actually take us to question 28 first. It says this, What does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? And listen how immediately it begins to talk about our actions and our planning. We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. What does God's providence lead us to? Patience in adversity, thankfulness in prosperity, and firm confidence in the future. So this passage clearly calls us to plan and plan well in light of God's providence. Not just to do what seems pure in our own eyes or what seems right, but to commit our ways to the Lord. To plan not in arrogance for injustice, dishonesty, and violence, but rather in steadfast love, faithfulness, justice. To be slow to anger and self-controlled over our spirit. And yet, how do you and I plan? What do we do? What, What do our actions say about our hearts? If God were really to weigh our spirit, what would he find? This, I think, is why we shun the idea of a sovereign God with perfect providence. Not because it's unbelievable, but because it's all too believable. And we don't like what that means for us. Because, you see, if this God is real, then we will be weighed, we will be measured and found wanting. For we are arrogant in heart, violent in spirit, selfish toward others. We act constantly as seems fit to us, but only if it fits our own ends. What's worse, as Martin Luther puts it, our will is in bondage to acting this way. We can't help but do this. We've taken God's beautiful song of creation and twisted it in knots for our own ends. And so if we're honest, we do deserve punishment. And so to try and absolve ourselves and assure ourselves, we act as if God doesn't exist. We take out or conveniently forget parts of the Bible we don't like. We make God into our image to give ourselves confidence rather than living as those made in his image, as his word says. And yet this only makes things worse. For without a a perfectly sovereign God, we have no external source of truth or beauty, no purpose in this world, no objective morality, no love, and no hope. And if it means no judgment, we just might try and make this type of worldview work. And yet, beloved, this God of providence still has one more card to play. For while we accuse him of being unholy, unjust, arrogant, and violent, he himself has acted. And he has acted not to come to us in anger, but to come in sacrificial love in Jesus Christ. 
You see, Jesus is the ultimate demonstration and vindication of the providence of God. For by his steadfast love and faithfulness, he atoned for our transgressions. He paid for our sins. He took our judgment so that we might walk free. This was the greatest injustice, the death of the only perfect man. And yet it became the greatest act of love the world has ever seen. The song of creation that was so twisted and manipulated beyond all of our hopes became all at once the most beautiful symphony ever heard simply at the sight of an empty tomb on Easter morning. For Christ died in love and rose again in love from the dead, with forgiveness of sins for his people, with the power to transform our hearts, transform the way we live and act. If only we believe in him, if only we have faith and acknowledge God's perfect providence in this world, and most especially in his Son. This confidence, this assurance, this great hope is ours. The Heidelberg Catechism, question one, describes it this way. And if you know this, I want you to listen closely for how it ties in not only God's redemption in Christ, but also his providence. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. The Dutch theologian Herman Bovink puts it this way, looking at the cross, Thus we come to know that it is no blind chance, dark destiny, no unreasonable or malign will, nor any undeflectable natural force which governs mankind in the world, but that the governance of all things rests in the hands of an almighty God, and a merciful Father. And we only know this through his revelation in Scripture and most especially in the coming of Christ. We see his love for us and the gift of atonement. In closing, I'm reminded of a a book that's been made into a musical. It's uh, Les Mis by Victor Hugo. And if many of you know the musical, this is actually going to be from the book, so it might be slightly different than what you understand. But towards the end of the book, one of the characters, Marius, has just married the love of his life, Cosette, but has found out that her father, who adopted her many years ago, is not who he thought he was. He has some kind of criminal past, and so Marius begins to shun him. Begins to say, you can't see your daughter. She just needs to be with me. I need to protect her from you. He starts to question, how did I come by this fortune through him? Uh, How did this police uh, commissioner die? How how do these things happen? And so he begins to leave, and he begins to go away. He begins to take his wife with him. And then a character, Tenardier, who, who's, who's, a, who's a con man and who's deceptive all throughout, comes to Marius to try, in his mind, to give him the death blow. To once for all pin Jean Valjean and say, okay, you don't need to be with him. Here are all the terrible things he's done. So first he begins to come, and Marius is willing to listen because he knows bad things have happened. And then at first, Tenardier says, no, no, he actually got that wealth honestly, and he didn't kill that police commissioner. And so all of a sudden Marius is like, wait a second, do I really know? What's gone on? And you see, there's one other piece to Marius' story. Earlier on, he was at a revolutionary barricade. He was wounded and injured, and somehow, some way, he made it out. He doesn't know how he made it to safety, but he knows he was rescued. And so Tenardier comes to him and says, Okay, I do know, though, that Jean Valjean was seen carrying a man that he must have killed and taken his money. I saw him on the night when the barricade fell, coming through the sewers with a man on his back. And so I cut out a piece of that man's robe as proof. So he pulls out this bloody piece of coat 
Marius goes to his dresser and pulls out his own coat and sees the piece that's been cut away perfectly. And he realizes in that moment that Jean Valjean has actually been honest, actually has been good, actually has been loving him the whole time, though he could not see it. You see, friends, this is what the cross shows us, that God has been acting out of love for us and care. The very thing, the death of the Savior that was meant to be the death knell for his people, the crucifixion, became the greatest act of sacrificial love and divine providence imaginable. And so you and I can have restoration and faith through that. And it is out of this great providence that we believers in Christ plan and live. We plan because of God's providence. They go hand in hand together. And so we start in Proverbs, or we finish in Proverbs just where we started. It is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Father, I ask once again that you would give us eyes to see. Eyes to see our need, but eyes to see the beauty of our Savior. To see what you have done for us in Christ. To see the beautiful providence that you are working these things out for your glory and for our good. Would you work in our hearts by your Spirit, and would this love that you have for us work itself out in the way that we love others? Would you transform us by your grace, we pray. In the name of Jesus, our faithful, suffering Savior. Amen.